Hey there, folks. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up about an exciting event coming up. Our first ever documentary-style episode titled America on the Knife's Edge drops May 15th. Following that premiere, we'll be hosting a live QA session on May 16th where you can join the conversation, ask questions, and share your thoughts on the topics explored in the episode. Visit OutrageOverload.net to sign up for the event. I'd love to see you there. Okay, let's start the show. Welcome to Outrage Overload, a science podcast about outrage and lowering the temperature. This is episode 32. I've uh, sort of run across a number of kind of efforts out there sort of trying to lower the temperature. And so so before we sort of jump into a lot of questions, maybe you can tell us, because I, I, so I discovered Courageous Conversations about our schools. To be honest with you, I don't even exactly remember how it crossed my radar. But but when I saw it, it, it looked like it really fit the bill for that kind of thing. So maybe we can start off by just telling us a little bit about that project and and sort of what it's about and, and why you started it. Yeah, you know, I I... I... As a as a career-long educator, I, I became really concerned a few years ago when the, the culture wars in education sort of erupted, along with culture wars outside of education. That's educator-turned-podcaster Ken Fugernick. I'm your host, David Beckmeyer. Uh, there, there were claims being made that, that teachers are indoctrinating students, and we've got to stop that. Uh, we've heard about these not only calls for the banning of books in schools, but laws that are being passed locally and in states um, to to remove books uh, that, you know, it's not the first time in our history when this has happened, but it's come up again. Um, uh, so uh, also things like gender and sexual identity has become something right at the epicenter of the culture wars, people being very concerned about um what they think teachers are doing in terms of sort of cultivating or, or grooming kids to to think about uh, sexuality and, and sexual identity and gender identity in ways that they wouldn't have had someone not brought it up. So now you have laws, uh, you know, in Florida, like don't say gay law, which initially, you know, seemed somewhat reasonable on the surface that you wouldn't be promoting uh, talking about these ideas too much with K-3 kids. And now it's K-12. And the law is very vague. And it's unclear whether a teacher could even put a picture of themselves on their desk if they were married to someone of the same gender, uh, whether that would be promoting something. And it, But so anyway, I created this uh, podcast, David, Courageous Conversations About Our Schools, because I, I wanted to see if we could get people with who with very different perspectives on some of those questions uh, to agree to a few simple conversation agreements, like let the other person talk without interrupting, um, 
and really listen to try to understand and have people sort of embrace this idea, at least for the half hour, an hour of curiosity over over confrontation. Um, and, and, and it's really about what Peter Coleman talks about, the difference between dialogue and debate. And, um, and we're really trying to have dialogue. He says, you know, and, and Peter is someone from Columbia University who's written a lot about toxic polarization. And uh, he says uh, what, uh, what we really should be striving for is is dialogue these days, and because debate is really about scoring points and winning and trying to get people to, but believe what you say and think and what you're advocating for. And, and dialogue is about opening up and and trying to get a, a, a to a solution or not, at least an understanding. And that means that. From time to time, we might admit that uh, maybe I didn't get that right, and maybe I need to think about that differently. And that—that's what I'm trying to do in the uh, in this new podcast. For me personally, this is kind of a, a little hot button topic for me. This is it's a sort of attack on and science and, and education. Let me just ask you a question because you and I are sort of uh, doing the same thing. We're 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 sort of fascinated and concerned about this sort of outrage and the culture wars and all that and how we can, if there's an entry point into it to try to make a difference. But Peter Coleman talks about something called the friend problem. And it's a phenomenon he's discovered that when people like you and myself and Peter and and, and Amanda Ripley, I mentioned before, anyone who tries to do what you just described and what I'm trying to do in my podcast, you know, goes out and says, I'm, and, and uh, Dylan Maron, you know, conversations with people hate me. Um, our friends uh, are the people that are part of our tribe uh, can be uh, skeptical at the very least. And, uh, and I think, so we, there's a temp, a, a, a tendency or possibility of feeling like we're being disloyal to our causes by listening to people without calling them out. And I just wonder if you've ever had that happen to you or have you ever feel that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I hear that as one of the, you know, common feedbacks is, you know, you were too easy on that person or you were, weren't, you know, you weren't, you should have attacked them on this and that or, or whatever point. And yeah, so I, I get that a lot, you know, even, you know, so that's one place where I get it that, that, yeah, people say you should have been harder on that person or something, or you should have straightened them out or whatever. So I do, do hear that, you know, and, and I think a big piece of it is, is you look at this tr trust issue, right? I mean, a lot of the, um, the further I, I get into this different science um, on this, that, you know, we, we, we sort of think of it as a post-truth world, but, but really it's kind of more of a post-trust world. And, you know, once you have crossed that barrier where the other person is kind of evil or immoral, there's no room for information transfer, right? There's no room for knowledge transfer. And, and, and so you, you're just going to push back no matter what they say. So that's what, so that makes it a real challenge if you just come at this from a hard perspective. But, but yeah, to what, to your point about, you know, sort of there's this idea of, you know, enforcing the norms. And so if I don't, demonstrate my outrage appropriately to my tribe i'm going to lose points or, or with them and and i think that's a, that that's happening with our politicians as well right i mean and it's a it's a it's a negative feedback loop in that 
you know, we kind of have been convinced that the other side is bad. So if our politicians aren't telling us the other side is bad enough, we want them to do it more and then they do it more and then we believe it more and then we want it more. And so it's a very negative cycle. But it has gotten to that point where, I mean, if you look in, in, at, at, at our political elites, you know, the politicians and others at that level, they're afraid to say anything that's sort of counter to this hostile narrative uh, towards the other side. Um, you know, and that means that they're, they, they can't even, like you say, even compromising, which, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand that democracy is basically compromised. I mean, one of the political scientists I spoke with, um, Kevin Smith, was, uh, you know, telling us that there's this idea of the loser's burden in America, that it's really an important aspect of American democracy, that if we lose, we say we lost but we'll get another chance in, in a little while. It's not life or death. It's not apocalypse if the other side wins. And But that's kind of the mode we've got things in that we think if the other side wins that, that – and we also emotionally, it's very hard, right? We take it so personally if our side loses. And so that loss becomes just an emotional – it's really powerful. It's very it's very hurtful. It really hurts us. We really take it personally. Yeah, and that's uh, – in, in some of the work I'm doing locally in, in the – County in which I live in Northern California uh, to bridge our divides, we have this initiative. Is, uh, is a, I think there are people who think uh, this is about uh, eliminating conflict and somehow uh, putting it aside. And and I and I frequently try to remind my residents in this county as we do this work and and do bridge building workshops and things. It's not about no conflict is about healthy conflict. Uh, and and Amanda Ripley is, you know, talks a lot about that in her book. Monica Guzman's uh, book, I never thought of it that way. She's a senior fellow at the Braver with Braver Angels, an organization, one of the eight thousand that you mentioned, uh, that uh and she's also a journal. She also talks about the importance of healthy conflict, but it's in a democracy, it, it, it but in in our relationships with our with our partners and our organizations and schools, uh, helping people have healthy conflict is so important. It's so important in a democracy. I, I remember uh, uh, Goodwin's book "Team of Rivals" and Abraham Lincoln surrounded himself with his uh, his political opponents in his cabinet because he wanted to get their ideas on the table. Um, and and we have to do that, but we the, the caveat is that we there is a, a hard a sort of a red line where we have to remind ourselves that we are what we have in common, that we're committed to democracy. We have to be civil, we have to be respectful, we have to empathize with each other. And when we cross that red line, a terrible things happen because then uh, the conflicts become high conflict. We start learning, stop learning from each other, and and our own thinking becomes impaired. Our thinking about the problem, because we don't have the benefit of uh, really truly understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, the problem from other people's perspectives, and then we just dig our heels in and start making assumptions that are often wrong about the problem and about. Uh, the other other people on the other side. Right. And that's from 
It seems like from a lot of the research on this is that one of the most effective things you can do is lower that perception gap somewhat, right? And and get people to see that, yeah, there are people on the other side that probably are crossing some red line that you have, but not everybody. And they're not all like that. And they're much, there's much more, you can probably agree on, there's much more, uh, they're, they're not as extreme as you think they are. Uh, and this kind of thing. And, and they, that seems to be more effective than things like fact-checking and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I would say this too, that this going back to this idea that people talk about that I've been trying to do, and now I do with um, some in-person workshops, and I do it on my podcast, is just promote this idea of, of listening. And I, uh, I've asked some of my guests to do something that Amanda Ripley calls looping. Um, it, 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 it will be familiar to your listeners. Uh, it just goes by a different name sometimes, paraphrasing. But sometimes I'll ask political opposites or people on different sides of an issue. Like uh, in one case, I had a conservative state senator from Kentucky on a call about civics education and how what teachers ought to be focusing on there. And I uh, and I also had a couple of liberal social studies teachers that teach high school civics. But when each of them responded to a question I had about what should civics teachers really talk about and are there things they should avoid talking about, um, I had someone, I asked the senator uh, to see if he could just loop back and say what he thought the liberal social studies teacher from Austin, Texas had said. And, and uh, she said, you, you, you got it right. And you, not only that, you added something to it that I really like. And when she did the same to him, his response was, you said it better than I did. And then uh, the conversation went in an unexpected direction. They basically said, I think we I, I don't really understand where we disagree. And where I thought the disagreement lay is in this idea, do we talk to our students and help them understand uh, where there are injustices in our society and, and about the dark parts of our history? And And this senator had supported a bill that at one point before it got modified was really uh, – sort of limiting what teachers could talk about in Kentucky and, and avoiding topics that would make students uncomfortable. But uh, that got changed due to some pressure from students and others, educators. But he, in listening to and, and having a teacher uh, really listen to him uh, carefully enough to repeat back what she thought he was saying, he became very generous and and wanting to know what she said, and then basically saying, I, I think I agree with pretty much everything you said. And uh, so, you know, being a podcast host uh, and hearing that, and just as an educator who's concerned about the culture wars, it it does, it, it, it makes me feel uh, a greater sense of hope that these divides can be bridged, that we can depolarize. And, and it starts with listening, it starts with being empathetic, but it, but the the interesting paradox is that it, it seems like we're perhaps giving oxygen to really bad ideas sometimes. But in fact, 
the ideas aren't always as bad or the the particular ideas that someone has aren't as bad as we thought they might have been. It's not that there aren't really bad ideas being pr promoted out there, but the, sometimes the people that we assume um, uh, embrace those ideas actually don't. Uh, and, and Or it's some different version of it. Or if they do, um, they if we listen to them, they're willing to to think about it, or and and if that happens, and and if we're willing to do the same, um, it gives me a sense of hope about our future of our school systems and our in our country. Yeah, well, that's that's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes people get caught up in sort of the shallow, sort of trigger words or capture words, whatever people use to describe these things, and we don't really necessarily know what that means. And as you say, as you maybe drill down on well, what specific policy does that mean you know we might find a lot less conflict on some of the specific there, there might be a few that are like yeah okay that policy it's kind of a hard time agreeing about that but there may be many many pol actual specific policies that that we have a much more agreement on than we think we do and, and I, I think this is true with things like immigration i think this is true with things like gun control i even think it's true with you know issues like abortion right I think there probably are a number of policy issues there's more agreement on than people think there are and there's definitely some red lines that people don't want to cross but people get stuck in sort of the high level words that people use at the in the politically elite arena and we kind of fall well I can't support that that's the bad word thing I can't support that or whatever and so you go, don't you think all the rest of it comes with it or whatever Yeah and book banning is a is a good example of that cuz I I had people on one of our episodes uh sort of you know, roughly for and against book banning. But I, I had to point out to the people that said they were opposed to book banning. I said, I, I said, I can't imagine any of us could really be against uh, book banning. He said, we wouldn't want books on bond making in an elementary school library or books that are just blatantly pornographic. Uh, right. And, and they said, well, that's true. I said, well, so it's not that anything all books, all materials should be available. It's where do we draw the line? But then we we, we ran into some real differences of opinion. Like uh, there are a lot of books that are being removed from school libraries, banned, that uh, simply because they have LGBTQ authors or themes. Now let's there's a converse, that's that there's a uh, healthy conflict we ought to be having because. Uh, why why should we be doing that? And and then let's talk about that. But this whole idea of we're against book banning or or for book banning or this idea of you know immigration is you know it boils down to do we want a wall or not? And it's so much more complicated. <laughs> right. And if we get into the complexity of you know book banning or immigration or parent rights when it comes to school, which is another one, um, then. People pause oftentimes and say, I, "I let me let me think about that," or they're willing to. If you say, "I want to think about that," uh, and and you, it, it says we'll be a little bit vulnerable. I don't know if I have the answer to that question. I need to think about it. And that's if you if people are saying that, and you know you're in a in a healthier place. Yeah, and you know, and people try to legislate some of these ideas you know that haven't really been well crafted and 
you know, these kind of high level things that are complex like that. And often, you know, and that legislation is usually basically a disaster because it's so vague, you can sort of make it be anything or nothing, depending on how you sort of decide to interpret it. Yeah. You know, you asked me earlier about, you know, things that I've learned in doing this, this work. And I I was just thinking about uh, something you just said about, you know, fact checking and so forth. And a couple of things come to mind. One is that Amanda Ripley, I, I think it was, who said uh, relationships far more than facts are, are the things that are likely to uh, get people to at least question and op- be open to a different way of thinking. And I have to say, in most of my career, I, I studied philosophy and was a philosopher of education. And, and the people that I spoke to uh, in in that group, we we often had you know a really intense dialogue, and we welcomed uh, you know people pointing out something that may be a flaw in your reasoning about something. Um, but I had this idea as, a, as an educator that we want kids to learn how to think uh, and how to think critically and to use logic and evidence and facts appropriately. And, and I still think that, of course. Um, but what I realized is that um, that's not enough. Uh, if you're trying to get people to open up to thinking about something differently, whether you're a teacher trying to do that with students or your student trying to do that with your teacher or other students, or um, that what it's what uh, matters is in in an exchange and a dialogue is whether people trust you to begin with. And if you don't feel trusted, uh, if you don't trust the other person, then uh, how often is, you know, you've been in a situation like that. Someone says, did you know, and, and cites a fact and you go, oh, I had, I didn't realize that you're right. And I'm going to change my, uh, we don't frequently change because of someone pointing out the illogic of an argument or a mm-hmm. new fact. We do sometimes and, and are willing to be open to a different way of thinking and a new fact or a fact that maybe replaces something that a bad assumption or a bad belief we have. If the people or the source of that information is from a trusted, is a trusted person or trusted source. And because then we can be vulnerable enough to say, you know, I was, I thought this, and then you pointed this out. Um, and I'm willing to think about, it, but we, we're only willing to do that if we can be vulnerable with the other person, and they're not going to shame you and say, "I can't believe that you were such an idiot to have believed that before." Now, there's this guy whose name I forget. Uh, he's been cited a lot. Who, black man in South Carolina that met with, uh, he would meet with KKK members and have oh, coffee right. with them. Yeah, I know and, you're talking about. I can't remember his name right now either. Yeah. Uh, That man is Daryl Davis, a black man who spent 30 years befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. He says 200 Klansmen have given up their robes after talking with him. I thought he was pulling my leg. As I was laughing, he reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, flipped through his credit cards and pictures, and produced his Klan card and handed it to me. And immediately I stopped laughing. I recognized the logo on there, the Klan symbol. And now I'm wondering, why am I sitting with a Klansman? But um, he was very friendly. It was the music, you know, that brought us together. The fact that a Klansman and a black person could sit down at the same table, enjoy the same music, 
that was a seed planted. So what do you do when you plant a seed? You nourish it. And that was the impetus for me to write a book. And I decided to go around the country and sit down with clan leaders and clan members to find out how can you hate me when you don't even know me. And something like over 200 documented cases of people who left the KKK because of the dialogue and the relationship they established with a black man. And if you so, I think it just demonstrates if you want to persuade, uh, which isn't always the goal, I think we have to realize part of it is just to right. understand. But if, you, if there's some potential for persuasion and you're open to the idea that you might be persuaded by them, it's got to happen through empathy and relationships. Right. Well, I mean, this is, I really want to thank you again for coming on the show. And I know it's uh, we've run a little long, but I, I've enjoyed it a lot. I have too. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, as you said at the outset, maybe before we recorded, is that the hope was for us to have a, uh, a coffee shop conversation. Uh, and and uh, I appreciated the fact that it was uh, unscripted and we got to meander around and, and covered different aspects of this problem. And it's... Um, I, I hope it's interesting and thought-provoking for your listeners. Yeah, I think I think it will be, and I and I uh, wish you luck with your with your project. And I I want to stay in touch and stay uh, kind of up to date about how it's going. Uh, let's let's do that. Uh, let's let's plan to be in touch in in a few months or a year and see what the progress has been has been made, and see if any of this is making a difference. That'd be great, I, and I definitely hope that it is. I mean, yeah. we're all doing our part, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank, thanks a lot, Ken. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, sure, sure thing. And uh, good luck. Yeah, take care. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. That is it for this episode of the Outrage Overload podcast. For links to everything we talked about on this episode, go to outrageoverload.net. Our focus for 2024 is to make the best show possible, to add the most value to you, our listeners. And the best way we can keep improving on that is to hear from you. What do you like to see? What do you want to see? What would make this show more valuable for you? You can give us that feedback at outrageoverload at gmail.com. Or if you're worried about hurting my feelings, you can go directly to outrageoverload.net slash survey and give those comments anonymously. So thanks again for listening and look for a new episode in a couple of weeks.